Well, good morning again. We are going to be continuing our series through the book of Hebrews that we started uh, back in August. Uh, Just to sort of bring you up to speed, you might remember me saying there are five uh, warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, This pastor is writing to his congregation, and he is seeking to encourage them in their perseverance in the faith. And so as he seeks to encourage them um, in perseverance, he goes back and forth between showing them uh, the greatness of God's Son in Jesus Christ and the corresponding severity of rejecting uh, such a great Savior. So uh, with that in mind, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, um, this morning we are looking at what is the, the end of the second warning passage. It started back in chapter 3, verse 7. If you remember, there was a, there was a quote there from Psalm 95, uh, which will continue to be referenced um, in our passage this morning. And then the writer expounds on that quote, uh, particularly about the perils Uh, of unbelief. That's what we looked at last week. That's what kept the wilderness generation from being able to enter uh, into the land. And then now this morning in chapter 4, what we're going to be looking at is our need uh, to enter uh, this rest that's been promised to us. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, If you don't have a a Bible with you, we do have it printed for you there uh, in the bulletin. I wouldn't normally do this, but this is a somewhat cumbersome passage. So as I read it, I'm going to be making a couple comments along the way just to hopefully help you um, keep on track. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, Therefore, that is in light of the perils of unbelief, uh, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. This is picking up on Psalm 95 again. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, that's Psalm 95 again, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Psalm 95 one more time, today if you hear his voice Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must 
and give account. Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together, of being able to worship you, and now to hear from you. We thank you for your word, and we do pray that this morning you would help us not only to, to understand it, uh, but to really uh, believe it. We pray that you'd press it down into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you stir a man to take pleasure in you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests uh, in you. Uh, that was said by uh, St. Augustine, a uh, North African uh, theologian in the 4th and 5th century. It's probably his most famous quote. You might have heard it before. Um, what I find interesting about it is not, is not just what it says, but actually where that quote uh, comes from. As he talks about restlessness here, it's in the first paragraph of his book called Confessions. It's sort of a, a spiritual um, autobiography, uh, and he's describing his uh, journey of faith, which was a pretty wild journey, if you know anything about Augustine. Uh, he also said, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. So, so his journey was pretty wild. Um, as he's describing that journey of faith, he describes it as a restless heart that is seeking for rest. And I don't know if you noticed, but he also describes it as a restlessness that's actually given to him by God so that he might look for rest in God. So I take it as just a given that we are all looking for rest in some form or another. Now, you may not uh, describe it in those terms, but we're all after something that will satisfy us. And this passage presses us to ask, where are you looking uh, for rest? Uh, where is it that you think you're going to find it? Where is it that you think, are, or who is making the most attractive offers to you for rest? Uh, you probably... Uh, picked up on the fact that this is a fairly complicated passage, uh, but one thing that's really clear, uh, Michael already mentioned it, is the phrase, enter God's rest, or something close to it, shows up about seven times um, in this passage. And so, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what I'll focus in on. Um, hopefully, you can leave here today uh, with answers to two important questions. Now, the first question is just, what is it? What exactly is uh, this rest uh, that he is talking about. And then the second question is, well, how do uh, we enter it? How does that work exactly? And so before I get to those two points, uh, one more thing, uh, one more thing I just um, wanted you to keep in mind. Uh, in that very first verse, the writer says that we are to fear. Uh, some translations say that we should uh, be careful um, I'm not sure that quite captures the gravity of what the writer is saying here. And as much as I would like to, you just can't really take the edge off of what he's saying here. Uh, it is for our good that he wants us to fear the dangers of not entering this rest and the unbelief that would prevent us from entering. Uh, he's planting uh, his warning sign that there is a curve up ahead, and he's saying you should be very afraid of the 100-foot drop over this edge. You don't even want it 
to seem like you might go over. Uh, For him, this is a serious, uh, weighty, uh, eternal matter uh, that he's talking about. And, And so he's not... He's not encouraging us to an anxious life, but an honest reckoning of the consequences of unbelief. Uh, For him, there is nothing, there is nothing worse than that we might fail to enter this rest. He wants us to make it. So with that in mind, uh, what is the rest? What is he talking about here? Well, the promise Uh, mentioned in verse 1 is the same promise that's been being discussed since chapter 3. This is the promise made to the wilderness generation. Uh, Back in Exodus 6, Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea, and God tells them he's also going to bring them into this land, the same land he promised Abraham. And so it would be easy to think that the promise is actually all about uh, the land, Uh, But stick with me here. Skip down to verse 8. You see there where he's talking about Joshua. Joshua was Moses' successor. After the 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua, he really did bring Israel across the Jordan and into Canaan. But it says here he did not give them rest. Uh, And we know this because of what verse 7 says. God continued to speak of another day. That is in the Psalm 95 quote written by David some 400 years after Joshua. He still says there's another day. So are you with me? The point is, if Joshua had given them God's rest, well then Psalm 95 wouldn't have needed to be written because David wrote it from the promised land. The land can't be the whole point. So now come back up to verses 3 and 4. He's talking about the foundation of the world here. And then he quotes from Genesis 2. He reminds us, God rested on the seventh day. And he's not saying here that God God was tired from all his world making and needed a break. Uh, God is very active. Uh, We know from the previous chapter that Israel saw God working for 40 years. So God is not chillaxing. Uh, That's not the point here. Um, You see, to understand this, you have to know that creation, uh, the creation account, it's not just about origins. It's not just to tell us uh, how things happened, but it's actually meant to tell us the way things are supposed to be, the way things ought to be. And so in Genesis 2, the seventh day is about God's own satisfaction and pleasure in what he has made. It was all very good. And furthermore, he wants to share it with his people. You see, the seventh day is when God's people would dwell with him in perfect fellowship and satisfaction. That is God's rest that the writer's talking about. That is what Adam lost Uh, when he sinned. And so the whole rest of the scriptures are seeking to answer the question, how can we get back into fellowship with our good God? It was always fellowship with God that was held out to Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people was always more important than the land of Canaan. And even Abraham, even Abraham who 
who heard this promise in Genesis 12 that, that we heard earlier this morning, Hebrews 11 tells us that he knew the land wasn't the thing, that he longed for a city with foundations. Abraham was looking forward to God's city, the heavenly city. In Matthew 11, uh, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is this rest, God's rest, that is behind all of our longings for rest. Every desire that you have is because you were created a desiring being. And all your desires and longings are rooted in the fact that God made you to be with Him and to enjoy Him and to enjoy His satisfaction. What we all know is that finding our rest in God is is not our natural uh, inclination, and so we search for it in other places. And the list, uh, the list is, is very long, right? We can look for rest in productivity and in procrastination. Uh, we can look for rest uh, in alcohol and in abstinence. We can look for rest in relationships and in alone time. But the reason you like rest is the same reason that so much of this world is so unsatisfying is because you were made for something more. So what God wants here is he doesn't want us to stop desiring. He doesn't want us to stop longing for rest, but to know that there is nothing that this world can offer that will compare to our rest with him. And so all the rest that we enjoy in this life is meant to point us forward to that ultimate rest with him that will truly satisfy. It is a life of unbroken fellowship with our creator. This is the rest that the writer is so concerned that we not miss. So how then, how, how do we enter it? How do we enter that rest? Well, we know from verse 1 and 2 that it's a promise and that it's, and that it's good news. And that means we enter uh, by faith. Verse 7 says, today, that is right now, you can have the rest of God by nothing other than believing in who Christ is and what he's done. Nothing but faith. But what I want you to see is that there's a future element to this rest. And that's really the emphasis in this part of the chapter. If you remember from chapter two, uh, we're told that God is bringing many sons to glory and it is only in the fullness of that glory that we will rest from all our perseverance. You see, our rest has this already and not yet character to it. Today, you can have this rest by faith, but not yet by sight. And that means we must continually believe. We must again and again put our faith in Christ. That, that's, that's the whole point of him mentioning the Sabbath rest here. It's a weekly 
celebration of God's rest and our rest in him by faith that points us forward. Points us forward to a future and permanent rest that we'll have by sight. Sundays are our weekly invitation to find all of our rest in him and not in this world. But what he says in verse 11 is as long as that rest still lies in the future, our faith must be a striving faith. That is, the Christian life is not something you can reduce down to a momentary decision and then you just get back to finding your rest in the world. We have to fight to believe, he says. Later in chapter 11, which is a chapter all about faith, we read that God rewards those who seek him. Now, wait a minute, Matt. I thought you were going to tell me about rest. (laughs) How are we supposed to strive and rest? Well, you're all striving for something. Uh, Your vacations and your binge-watching Netflix and your empty scrolling on your phone, these are all forms of striving after rest. And what the writer wants is that we would strive not after the world, but that we would look for, that we would seek after, and that we would fight for the world to come. Well, what does that look like? Striving is the opposite of surrender. You remember Caleb and Joshua Uh, They they actually believed God's promise. They wanted to go into the land. They were ready to go in and fight against giants, but it wasn't because they were brave. They just believed that what God said he was going to do, he really would do. And so they were fighting to believe God's promise over against the things that they could see. Striving is a refusal to give in to alternatives that the world is offering. It is saying, I will not find my rest by sight in this life. And every pleasure that the world does give me, I will thank God for it. It's only a foretaste of what he has for me. Striving is saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Even Jesus had to believe in the Father's goodness to him. Herman Bovink says, faith for Christ was nothing other than the act of clinging to the word and promise of God. And so we can't forget what's already been said in chapters one and two here as we think about striving. Striving is done in dependence on and with the resources of the one who has already entered God's rest the one who believed perfectly and now he rests from all his earthly work. He's the pioneer of our faith. He's done what we couldn't do so that we could follow after him in faith. It is by faith in Christ that we strive to enter. Now, I've already mentioned, I've already mentioned that the writer here, he's he's pressing on these things because he's concerned. He thinks that Entering the rest is a very urgent matter. And so he says in verse 11, the reason he says all this is so that no one may fall. 
He's a good pastor. And he wants them to make it. And there are times when saying, you know, don't worry, guys, everything's going to be okay, isn't actually the right thing to say. And at this point in their life, what they needed to hear was if you let go of faith in Christ, if you turn back from him, you will fall just like the people in the wilderness did. And so God, uh, in his good providence, he has us looking at Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. And I don't want us to fall either. I know for me, without a regular reminder of my future heavenly uh, rest, my own restlessness just grows. Uh, My appetite for worldly uh, imitations of that rest, it creeps in and the offers that I can see in front of me become more appealing than the ones that I have to believe by faith. And so we need to give our attention to what these last two verses have to say. They may seem a little bit out of place to you, but they actually ground what the writer is saying in verse 11. This is why he's urging them to strive. Uh, We typically use the phrase word of God to refer to all of scripture, and that's certainly a fine way uh, to refer to scripture, but I think the writer has something more specific uh, in view here. These are the same promises uh, that he's been talking about the whole time. Actually, uh, the word here is the same one that's used to translate message up in verse 2. This is what the wilderness generation uh, didn't believe. Remember back in chapter 1, the book began with the writer telling us about God's speech and how that speech comes into its fullness in the life of Jesus Christ. It is the promises of God in Christ that are in view here and where our rest is is truly found. And so what he says about those promises is sobering. God's promises of rest in Christ are living and active, he says, right? We can can believe in them today. They are an ever-present call to faith, but they are also a two-edged sword. These promises divide soul and spirit and joint and marrow. The point is, They cut down deep into places that we can't see into and that we may not understand. And notice he moves from talking about the word of God to God himself in verse 13. That's because the way we respond to what God says, or excuse me, a response to what God says is a response to God himself. It is his sight from which no one is hidden. God's promises of rest in Christ expose our hearts. They reveal where we find our rest. They reveal where we take comfort, where our desires are fulfilled. And what the writer says is God's knowledge is exhaustive. He sees right into the intentions of your heart. So what that means for us is that you can't fool God. Uh, Going to church won't fool him, and having obedient children won't fool him, 
and tithing and even Sabbath keeping will not fool God. You can fool the whole world and you can fool yourself, but you can't hide from God. It's God who makes these promises and it is God alone who knows if we believe them. And there is no rest for those whose hope is in anything other than Jesus. And so with the writer to the Hebrews and by the authority I have as a minister of the gospel in Christ's church, let me urge you and urge us to, as long as it is called today, do not harden your hearts, but strive to enter the rest of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for such a great Savior that we have. We thank you that we live after the death and resurrection of your Son, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would grow in us uh, faith, that we would learn more and more to lift our eyes to heaven, that we would not live by what we can see that we would not live for momentary pleasures, but that we would live uh, for the world to come and that we would lay hold of it by faith um, every moment that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.